Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool. Why? Well, it's very comfortable just to drift here. Fake thugs, no love, starting to bug. Where's the gusto? Stock stuck in a range, looking for gains. We need a boost of good news from 10Ks. Raise that guidance like a roost. A top of the morning, buenos dias, fresh orange juice, yo. Soft commodities popping, La Nina coming through. CPI starting to fade in the rear view. But the Fed ain't done, son, till it gets around to. Too many times we believe what we want to. Blowing through signs, keep buying like we have to. Repeating those rhymes, busting bars like Nas. Yo, he's Illuminati, make way for the boss. Clear a path for the players gonna play through it's investing less in time for me and for you tis the season of new dynamics new rules for success we're gonna learn those together on the investopedia express welcome back and welcome aboard a little more chop in the capital markets last week as economic data on consumer prices retail sales and better than expected earnings results from big banks were all blended together producing a pretty pulpy smoothie for investors to swallow the consumer price index for March showed what we thought it would. The pace of overall increases are slowing a lot, inching up only 0.1% for the month and coming in at a 5% annual rate. But they are who we thought they were. Take it easy, Coach Green. Core prices, which strip out those volatile food and energy prices, were up 5.6%. That's still kind of high considering the Federal Reserve would like to see that number closer to 2%. But the trend is moving in the right direction, albeit slowly. U.S. retail sales, though, fell for a second straight month, a sign that household spending is cooling as we deal with persistently high inflation and rising borrowing costs. We know how important consumer spending is to economic growth, accounting for around 70% of GDP. Investors took all these signals in and stuck to the recent playbook, buying blue chips, sending the Dow higher for the fourth straight week. The S&P 500 climbed 0.8%, while the Nasdaq inched up just 0.3%. Better than expected earnings from big banks at the end of the week boosted that sector, relieving some of the pressure that has built up since those bank failures a month ago. Still, worries around slowing growth and sticky high inflation drove treasury prices higher to end the week and pushed gold prices to their highest levels all year, up 12% in 2023. The Fed meets again on May 3rd, and the market is currently pricing in a 65% probability of a 10th straight rate hike. This will be another 25 basis point increase to put the Fed funds rate between 5 and 5.25%. When was the last time the Fed funds rate was above 5%? Back in September of 2007. We are in one of those weird moments, though, where some investors are flocking to safe havens like gold and cash, while others are piling into riskier assets like growth stocks and crypto. Bitcoin alone is up 80% year-to-date, Ethereum up 78%, and the NASDAQ 100 up 20%. As our friend Liz Young at SoFi says, someone is going to be wrong. And that leads us straight into our big three, for the week. Number one, despite all the churn in the stock market lately, volatility has been pretty tame. The VIX or volatility index, which measures the market's expectations for volatility over the next 30 days, has been chilling below 20 for the past two to three weeks. It was as high as 26 at the end of March when the Fed last met and banks were starting to fall apart, and it topped 33 back in October when the market was bottoming, but it's kind of been on spring break lately. 
Maybe it's because more traders are using shorter-term options to bet on volatility, like those zero days to expiration options we spoke about a few weeks ago. Or maybe there's just less uncertainty about the challenges facing the equity market given what we know about the path of interest rates. Reminder, there's still a 67% probability that the Fed will hike rates again when it meets in May, but that might be it for the year. But while all may be quiet on the VIX range, there are storms brewing in the bond futures market. Merrill Lynch Move Index, a measure of price volatility in government bonds, has been moving around a lot lately. It's down from its recent highs a few weeks ago amid the mini banking crisis, but it's still hovering well above its 20-year average. And when we see the kind of swings in treasury prices and yields that we've seen in the past six months, it's a clear and present sign that bond investors still have a lot of uncertainty about the path of economic growth in the near and the long term. If the bond market is choppy, stocks are going to feel it one way or the other. Number two, about those stocks, we talked about the rare Zweig breath thrust indicator last week, the unique phenomenon when a high percentage of stocks trade above their 10-day average at the same time. It's happening now. But if we peel back the calendar a little bit more all the way back to October, we do see a pretty broad-based recovery across the equity market. Since October 10th, the S&P 500 is up 15%, the NASDAQ is up 22%, and every U.S. sector is positive, every one of them, including financials. And while we've talked about the heavy concentration of big cap tech stocks that have led the gains, a lot of smaller stocks have been crawling out of the bear den into the spring sunlight. The percentage of stocks in the NASDAQ 100 that are still in bear market territory, which is down 20% or more from their 52-week high, that's now down below 24%. That's the lowest since January of 2022 and a big shift from last year when nearly 80% of companies were in bear market territory. They may never reach their highs again and they could easily fall from here, but asset prices do have a way of reverting to the mean. As long-term investors, we have to put these swings into perspective. They are the price we pay to invest. Seven times a year, stocks dip 3%. Three times a year, a 5% correction. About once a year, we get a 10% correction. About every one and a half years, we get a 15% severe correction. And every two and three quarter years, we get into some kind of a bear market. This is the territory we are in. So make sure you have a map, a compass, and you know your time frame. And number three. If you're looking for a bull market, you're going to find it in the kitchen and the pantry. Soft commodity futures prices, things that are grown rather than mined, are screaming high right now for items like sugar, coffee, cocoa, and frozen orange juice. They are all trading at multi-year, if not record highs. It's what traders call a backward-dated forward curve, which happens when nearby futures contracts are higher priced than deferred contracts. Spot prices for these softs currently trade at higher prices than those commodities for delivery in March 2024, for example. Why is this happening? Blame the weather. In recent years, Brazil and other commodity producing countries have been wrestling with a La Nina weather pattern that reduced production of some of their main crops such as sugar, coffee, and soybeans just at a time when demand for many of these commodities continued to increase, which created those tight supplies. As for OJ, frozen concentrated orange juice futures are up more than 35% year to date and settled at a record high on Tuesday that goes all the way back to 1967. Strong post-COVID demand for vitamin C, the worst orange crop in Florida since the 1920s, and harvest delays in northern Brazil, they're all adding to that price spike and we are having a production shortage right here in the U.S. 
In a report released last Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Agriculture pegged the U.S. all-orange forecast for the 2022-2023 season at just 2.57 million metric tons. That is the lowest mark in 86 years and a 23% drop from last year. As for cocoa, tough weather conditions in practically all major cocoa-producing countries, particularly Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa and Ghana, which together account for more than 60% of global output, has led to a steep decline in cocoa production, which drives prices higher and higher. Coffee, chocolate, sugar, juice futures, all up more than double digits this year. And the common denominator? Weather. Climate is the elephant in our kitchens. Let's get set up for a very busy week ahead, and it's all about earnings. And it's lights out, and away we go! Some of the world's largest, most widely held companies will be reporting results this week, including Johnson & Johnson, Bank of America, Netflix, Lockheed Martin, Tesla, Morgan Stanley, IBM, American Express, and Procter & Gamble, among others. Remember, expectations are pretty low for earnings results, with analysts estimating a 6.5% drop in quarterly profits. That's the biggest since the second quarter of 2020. 80 companies in the S&P 500 have already guided their own estimates lower, so we have a pretty low bar going into the report card season. With clouds gathering around a darker economic downturn ahead, we're going to be listening very closely to what companies are saying about the rest of this year. Guidance is everything. We'll also get updates on the U.S. housing market this week, including March housing starts, building permits, and existing home sales. The 30-year fixed mortgage rate cracked last month coming off those 14-year highs, but they are still north of 6%, and that has kept the U.S. housing market in low gear. But there may be a little spring awakening happening right now. According to Redfin, the percentage of homes selling above their listing price, which is a proxy for housing demand, rose to 28.5% in March, from a three-year low of just 21.2% in January. Meanwhile, median selling prices rebounded back above $400,000 from a one-year low of $383,000 in January. We'll also get inflation readings from the UK, Eurozone, and Japan, as well as the first quarter GDP figures from China. Is everyone feeling the slowdown? The IMF downgraded global GDP forecast last week from 2.9% to 2.7%, a steep drop from the scorching hot 6% we felt last year. Financial markets are inherently social markets. Whether it was trading shells and spices under the tents, OJ futures and copper in the commodity pits, or stocks outside the Buttonwood tree on Wall Street, humans have always gathered for this ancient activity. The internet only amplified that, and social platforms like Twitter, StockTwits, TikTok, Reddit, and Facebook took it to unimaginable levels. eToro, the social online trading platform, tried to capture that dynamic by allowing its customers to follow one another's trades and share information and ideas. It worked. A decade later, eToro is still charging ahead with that strategy, but now it's taken it to the next level with Twitter. The two companies announcing a deal to let Twitter users have the option to buy and sell stocks and other assets from eToro. That's a pretty big deal given that Twitter has 450 million users or so, and it's the first big deal announced by Elon Musk since he bought the company he now calls X. Let's get into that and what's been going on in the markets and the economy with one of my favorite follows on X and across financial media, Callie Cox, who happens to be eToro's investment analyst. Welcome to The Express. We are big fans. Hey there. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm not going to lie, I'm probably going to still call X Twitter for a really long time. 
I think I am too. And you could, he could put a dog up there in the corner, but it's still the bluebird for me. <laughs> right. Let's talk about the deal. I know you're the investment analyst. You're not the investment banker over there, but it is going to be super impactful for you and the community that you kind of shepherd through eToro and that you give guidance to. I want to talk about the deal. Then I want to talk a little bit about you. And then I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in this wacky world of investing right now. So let's talk about the deal. Pretty big deal. Yeah. So Gosh, where to start? I mean, obviously, it, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Like you said, Caleb, I mean, Twitter is where everybody goes for their financial news. It is the predominant social media platform when it comes to financial discussion, really. And then, I mean, eToro, we are a social investing app, and we're arguably one of the first and one of the biggest. I mean, I don't know if you know, but eToro was actually established in 2007, so right after Twitter was founded, which is kind of wild to think about because we act as the Twitter of finance. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, the collaboration, it's going to be having our context added to cash tags, which cash tags are, for those who don't know, it's the dollar sign followed by the ticker. It's been around for about 10 years. And we're essentially adding our context, our charts, our commentary around stocks, and eventually, well, actually now, our ability to trade certain stocks under cash tags to Twitter's platform. So if you see cash tags on Twitter, you can hover or click your mouse on them and you can essentially be sent to eToro's platform to talk to more people about what you're looking at, what you're researching and potentially decide to invest in it based on what you learn. And it's stocks and crypto too. I mentioned stocks, but this is available for both stocks and crypto. Yeah, I think this is going to get a lot more people interested in those assets one way or the other, and just having that information there for that community. And I'm a FinTwit guy. I've been forever since I've been in this business. I know you've been on FinTwit a long time. That's where we get a lot of ideas and we share a lot of information anyway. eToro is the next step in that, which is actually execute something on those ideas. So it's very interesting partnership. We'll be watching this one super closely. You're the investment analyst there at eToro right now. you got a lot of users. You're seeing a lot of activity. I know you guys are data junkies like we are. What's the sentiment? What's the activity like on eToro among your users? Because obviously, we are not where we were back in 2021 when the markets were on fire, meme stocks were ablaze, and everybody was trading or at least trying to get into it. So what's the vibe now these days? Well, this surprises even me, Caleb, but Investors obviously are getting more nervous. How could you not looking at everything that's happening around us? But they're staying surprisingly resilient, both on our platform and through quarterly surveys we do of global investors. We really try to keep our finger on the pulse of everyday investors and what they're thinking, because I think there are a lot of assumptions made. Retail investors are the day traders. They jump out at any sign of trouble. And then we just- The dumb money they call us sometimes. Exactly. That's traders, not, not investors like us, but the traders. Right. But I think that there are more retail investors who are like us than people lead on to. On our platform, you know, we see a little bit of both. Um, and I'm not talking about dumb money. I'm talking about long-term, short-term. But we see a lot of these almost like ambidextrous investors. Lule came up with that. I thought it was brilliant. But these investors who are long-term, they invest for long-term security. They invest for financial independence. And they want to learn too. They genuinely come onto the platform and they say, I've heard a lot about this investing stuff teach me how it's done. All my friends and family are talking about it. Money is in the everyday conversation. So I want to try this out for myself. So you know, many of them are long-term, but a little more strategic. They'll step out every once in a while on a brand that they know or a meme stock that they want to try their hand at, and they'll make some more short-term opportunistic trades. 
And, you know, we've seen a little bit of that trading pull back a little, and it makes a lot of sense. People are very cautious in this environment and they're financially, you know, becoming a little more conservative. But at the same time, we've seen trading tick up in the first part of the year. We've seen people hold on, not necessarily sell out, but almost kind of wait until we have a little more certainty around things, hopefully in the next few months, but we've been saying that for forever. But investors overall have been quite resilient. And I really chalk that up to the fact that the consumer is doing quite well right now. That's not the story across the board. I don't want to make a huge generalization, but the job market is quite strong. And typically when retail investors have money, they they spend it, they save it, or they invest it. Investing is one of those main buckets. We feel the same thing. Tracks with our sentiment surveys too. People are looking for a reason to believe, Callie, but it's also been pretty challenging given the bear market of last year, given all the economic clouds that are circling. and just seems like the walls of worry keep climbing everywhere. But there's this sort of inertia too, where there's just a lot of money in the market and a lot of sideline money. And whenever there's an opportunity, there is some dip buying. Certainly, we see it here. I'm sure you see it right there on the platform. But given that we have this kind of new normal now for risk assets, given interest rates, given inflation, given the fact that the bond market has been through what it's been through, what has that sort of done in terms of the activity on the platform itself? What are you noticing? Well, our crypto users, or our users, especially in the US, are heavily crypto. So we do see a lot of activity around there, even after the vicious crypto winter that we've seen. Same trends that we're seeing there that we are in more traditional assets, a lot of holders, a lot of believers long-term in the potential for crypto, but they're not necessarily encouraged enough to step out and trade and speculate in it. But inflation brings up a whole other interesting dynamic, and I really think it hones into the fact that investors have been so resilient. The consumer is obviously doing well, but they know prices are rising at such a quick rate. They know that the bar is higher for their money. So that gives them more impetus to invest their money and make their money work for them. And we see that throughout a lot of the popular activity that we see on our platform. I mean, we've seen larger clients like look at short-term T-bill ETFs, for example. We've seen investors look outside of stocks and look at bonds for more short-term income. We've seen them look more at the commodity space, commodities ETFs and commodity-linked stocks. They're very aware of what's going on and they know the pressure that inflation is putting on their money. And I think they're you know, almost leaning into that more strategic bucket more to fight the powers of inflation. Yeah, absolutely. And also we've had this weird change in leadership in the stock market. We have some of the big mega cap tech stocks that have been kind of seem like safe havens, the Apples, the Microsofts of the world, those have done great so far this year. Money has flowed into them. And we've seen what has happened with the NASDAQ. The last couple of weeks have been a little bit choppy. But then what blows me away, Callie, is when I look at stocks making 52-week highs, because I feel like you got to look at where the trend is. If stocks making a 52-week high, there's got to be something. I'm a little bit blown away with some of these names. Let me throw a couple at you. McDonald's right now. Ferrari right now at a 52-week high. I saw a Hershey the other day at a 52-week high. You're just getting these peculiar stocks that are popping out. O'Reilly Automotive, strong in very strange times. So if I were to make any bets at the beginning of the year, and I don't make bets on individual stocks, but World Wrestling Entertainment, obviously because of the merger reasons. But when you look at those, it's just like, how do you make sense of what is doing well right now and why it's doing well? It's hard to generalize too much, right? Because a lot of these individual stocks are going through their own stories, like WWE, as you mentioned, through some, I can't remember if it's a merger or acquisition, but some MA activity. 
But I think in general, we're just seeing a gravitation toward larger stocks in this market. And I see that as a defensive lean. I see that as investors feeling a little more uncertain about the future and knowing that interest rates are high and it's a tough operating environment. So they gravitate toward what they know and what they think can weather this storm. If I had to pull one thread throughout the market, that's the thread that I'm seeing, at least from where I sit. And big tech folds into that too in a very interesting way. We all think of the FANG stocks or the MANA stocks, whatever you want to call them. We all think of them as traditional growth stocks, You know, the stocks that led the market higher in the 2010s. But at this point, there are also the stocks on the market with the highest profit margins. They have huge cash hoards. They have rock strong balance sheets. And they're looking more like conglomerates these days that do a bunch of different things, have their hands in a bunch of different cookie jars versus these like small, nimble tech startups that we once knew them as. And, you know, I think the market is kind of painting them that way too. They're saying, okay, well, these stocks look a little more defensive, especially with rates so high and a recession possibly around the corner. So, you know, why not hide out in them? And then we get this sort of concentration in the S&P 500, which is market weighted and the NASDAQ, where you get all of a sudden we're back to the concentration again, where some of these big mega caps are 13, 14, 15% of the overall index. So as they go, so goes the market, but that is the kind of the world we're living in right now. So we've also been through a lot economically and we got a big interest rate meeting coming up in early May. We've gotten through these jobs reports, the latest CPI report. We kind of know where we are right now, stuck in this 5% inflation, slowly meandering down, maybe coming to the end of Fed rate hikes after the next meeting. Maybe they'll stop even before that next meeting, depending on what happens with the banks. But sort of where do you paint us right now? Like, Are we in getting to the end of a tunnel here where we can at least have the visibility or is it just cloudy? throughout for the rest of this year? How do you see it? Well, we know, but we kind of don't know. <laughs> we know a lot of where we are right now, as you said, Caleb. I mean, we have inflation coming down. It's been coming down for the past nine months. We finally have seen some progress on services side inflation, which is the kind of inflation the Fed has wanted to get down for so long. Obviously, some of this progress is unfortunate because we had the banking issues back in March, and that could cause a chilling effect on the economy, which brings inflation down, but increases the chance that we are going to fall into a recession. So I look at where we are. I look at all the data around me. I still think it's tough to say that we are in a recession at this moment. Of course, who knows? It's anybody's guess. The NBER is ultimately the body that calls that. But with the job market so strong, and consumer spending, consumer confidence being such a big part of the economy, I really think it's hard to say we're in a recession right now. We're certainly moving closer, and I think the margin of error is growing as the days go on. But at the same time, we've been saying that for a year. So at this point, in my mind, the pain trade is almost higher, and you almost have to take an optimistic stance on the economy because that's what it's shown us time and time again. The way that I word it to our customers is essentially... I need to see actual evidence of a recession before I believe that we are in a recession. And that's hard to say when you're an analyst and your job is essentially looking out to the future and telling investors how to prepare for it. But this is a really odd economy that we're living in. And there are a lot of different cross currents to consider. So, you know, I just have to take the data at face value. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. And it could be the most anticipated recession of all time or a growth recession, as uh, Alan Blinder told us last week on The Express. We've seen those before, too. It's unlike any we've ever seen before. But, you know, I get this question all the time, too. It's like, recession? I don't know. You're in a recession if you lose your job or you're getting foreclosed on or you have a financial emergency that you can't deal with or it's happening to your neighbor and you see it playing out in front of you. Like, recessions become very personal at some point. And when we talk about it over and over again, it's like, I don't know, am I going to change my behavior tomorrow? Only if I have to, or only if something happens, that's going to force me to do that. So for young people, and you have a lot of young folks on the eToro platform, and you're young-ish compared to me anyway, how are you advising people to invest? We get this question a lot. How do I put 10,000 bucks to work? How do I get going right now? How do I make a, a portfolio with a strong foundation, no matter what, that's going to get me through the next 10 years or 20 years of investing? What do you advise? Well, I want to hit on an earlier point you said, and then I promise I'll answer your question. I'm not dodging that one. But what you said about recessions being personal has really made me think a lot lately because for months and months, we've had the situation of everything feels bad, but I personally am in a good spot. So I'm not cutting back on my spending, but things feel uncomfortable around me. Again, it's a big generalization. I don't think everybody's in the same boat, but that's something to think about. I don't think you can anecdote your way into a recession, but the fact that consumers do feel like they're in a good place matters a lot for the economic outlook. And I think we've learned that more and more over the past year. In terms of younger investors and how they should invest right now, it's a really tough environment. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I'm a younger investor. I'm early on in my investing journey. And some days I just want to like smash my phone. <laughs> I you know, fall into the trap of looking at my account too much. But at the same time, it's especially important to really know your why and know your time frame. And people throw that around a lot. But when I say know your why, I mean, know exactly what you're going to do with that money that you're investing, because that dictates every single decision you make around your portfolio. And it's your decision. It's not the decision of people around you. I mean, we love community. We think community is empowering, but the line is extra thin when it comes to community versus groupthink. So if you're a younger investor, if you have some money um, you know, sitting on the sidelines, if you're feeling pressured about inflation, know how you're going to use that money and that dictates what you're going to do next. And if you're like most younger investors, if you have that longer term time frame, you can probably take on more risk right now than you think. And bear markets historically have been a great time to invest. It just won't, it probably won't feel too good. Doesn't feel too good right now. I know it didn't feel good to me in 2007. 2008, but it felt really good in 2018, 10 years later, as long as, and I kept to the plan. So great advice there. All right. Hot take for 2023. What's not getting enough attention in your view, Callie, right now? What's nobody talking enough about? Okay. Two hot takes for you. One, we've already talked about it, but I think retail investors are vastly misunderstood. And that goes back to the headlines we see around retail investors running at the side of trouble, retail investors being day traders, retail investors being irresponsible with their money. We have more data than most people on what retail investors, everyday investors are doing, and that couldn't be further from the truth. They're just trying to get along and build wealth like the rest of us are. That's a drum I'll beat for days. Um, Amen. I'm with you on that. <laughs> I could talk about that for hours. From a more markets perspective, I think that's sentiment and positioning. So how people are setting up their portfolios compared to the news we're seeing, and then the products they're using to set up their portfolios, I think those matter more than ever these days. And that goes into short-dated options, for example, how short-dated options are moving the market 
and how the actions of a bunch of investors can lead to a day that doesn't really match up with the news we're seeing. The whole good news is bad news. Bad news is good news. The S&P swinging 5% on a CPI day like we saw in October. I think people are really underestimating that. And that that's kind of a passion point for me in the markets. Um, I pull a lot of data around that. I was one of the first people to step out and say that the VIX wasn't accurately reflecting the fear in the markets. So there's a bit of a personal bias there. But I think we're just now starting to understand how market structure has changed so much. And even if you're not a market structure nerd, how it could affect the prices of the assets and investments you personally have money in. Yeah, great points, both good takes, and I'm definitely with you on those. All right, you know we're a site that was built on our finance and investing terms. I gotta know, what is Callie Cox's favorite investing term and why? Ooh, okay, so my favorite investing term is spinoff, and the reason why it is is because I feel like I can incorporate it into daily language, i.e. when somebody has a baby, congrats on the spinoff. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> Other than that, this is the options analyst in me talking, but contango is also a really good term. It's essentially in the futures market where the current price of an asset is trading lower than where the futures are trading. And it describes the shape of the futures curve. But contango sounds like a dance. Such a fun word. It's awesome. One of our favorites here. Those are some great picks. We love those. Callie Cox, the investment analyst at eToro. Such a great follow. We're going to link to your blog. You should follow her folks on X, Twitter, whatever they're calling it right now. And we're big fans and we look forward to watching how this plays out with uh, the partnership. Thanks for being on The Express. Thanks for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Obadiah, who is kind enough to send us an email suggesting the velocity of money for this week's term. And we love that suggestion given concerns about an economic slowdown. According to Obadiah and my favorite website, the velocity of money is a measurement of the rate at which money is exchanged in an economy. It's the number of times that money moves from one entity to another. The velocity of money also refers to how much a unit of currency is used in a given period of time. Simply put, it's the rate at which consumers and businesses in an economy collectively spend money. The velocity of money is usually measured as a ratio of gross domestic product to a country's M1 or M2 money supply. The word velocity is used here to reference the speed at which that money changes hands. If the velocity of money is increasing, then more transactions are occurring between individuals in an economy. What a great term and a smart suggestion from Obadiah this week. Socks for you, my friend. We're going to let Ben Bernanke take us out this week. Bernanke was chairman of the Federal Reserve from 2006 to 2014. He, among many others, helped steer the U.S. economy through the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 by flooring interest rates and quantitative easing, buying government bonds. Bernanke was a student of the Great Depression, and he used that knowledge to throw everything but the kitchen sink at the crisis. It worked, although the scars of that crisis are still with us today. Here's Bernanke in a 2018 interview with David Wessel, Bernanke's colleague at the Brookings Institution, on why the Fed did what it did in 2008. If we had let the financial panic continue and get even worse, the damage to the U.S. economy could have been even much worse than it actually was. Looking forward, what this suggests is that we need to make sure our system is sufficiently capitalized, has enough liquidity, has, has enough safeguards so that a panic like this you know, becomes very unlikely in the future. And, and moreover, if a panic does occur and 
probably we can't guarantee that there never will be another panic, someday there will be, that uh, policymakers have appropriate tools to respond to put out the fire as quickly as possible in a more systematic, predictable, and effective way. Well, we didn't have a massive bank run or a financial panic a few weeks ago after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank went under, so maybe the Fed has learned some lessons along the way. History will be the better judge of that. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to Kelly Cox at eToro for climbing aboard the Express. Good timing with that Twitter announcement. We're going to link to her blog and all the reports we cited on today's show. Find all that in your show notes wherever you listen to The Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Hold on tight this week as the headlines are going to be coming at us fast as we zip on down the tracks. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 